0: Hey there, everyone. It's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival Magazine. And once again, my travels have taken me away from my podcast responsibilities. But it was all worth it. I just wrapped up the week at the NRA Convention in Louisville Kentucky, I have a lot of great gizmos and training to bring you over the next few weeks. And I want to give a special shout-out to everyone at our MCS Mag's New World Patriots Alliance private party. That was great getting to meet all of you, and I especially want to congratulate Lisa Bruch for winning our AR-7 Survival Rifle Giveaway. Lisa, congratulations, but I think that the hardest part of winning is going to be keeping your husband, Steven, from claiming it's actually his. So good luck with that. Now, just because I couldn't get one of our experts on the phone doesn't mean we're skipping a podcast. All queued up, here's another great interview we dusted off from our archives with my good friend, Peyton Quinn as the Inter ops director, Buck, discussed the truth about your firearm stopping power and what it really takes to stop a violent attacker when you're done. Peyton is always one of my absolute favorite guests and one of the best guys in the entire world that you'll ever meet. In fact, his new business is at www.easyridercoloradoharleytours.com where you can spend your days touring some of the most beautiful spots in the United States and spend the nights kicking back around a warm fire and tipping your favorite brew and listening to some of Peyton's wild stories. Trust me, he'll have you laughing all night long, and you'll actually learn a thing or two from his experience as a biker bar bouncer and self-protection legend. If you're into Harleys and want to have the ride of your life, head on over to www.easyridercoloradoharleytours.com and check out Peyton's schedule and details he'll even provide the bike for you. And while you're checking all that out, listen in now as Peyton shares some of his most critical life-saving knowledge about defending yourself with your firearm. Check this out.
1: Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival.
2: Forget what you think you know about what it takes to stop an enraged attacker with a firearm. Most people have been brainwashed by Hollywood, internet bluster, and big mouth know-it-alls in online forums. About the effectiveness of various firearms and ammunition, but science and real-world autopsies trump imaginary expertise any day. And it's time you discover the secrets known only to the most advanced firearms experts in the industry. Peyton Quinn is one of those experts and is willing to share his latest findings in this exclusive interview. Hello, everyone. I am Buck Green, and tonight we're here to talk to the legendary Peyton Quinn about stopping power. Hello, quite uh, Peyton.
3: Hi, Buck. Good to be here. I- I'm it's legendary, Peyton. huh? You are. <laughs>
2: You are legendary, whether you know it or not.
3: Uh, a legend now, my own mind, perhaps.
2: <laughs> Peyton has joined us here at the ISTTC before, and his name should sound familiar to you because Peyton is a member of the Black Belt Hall of Fame. He pioneered adrenal stress training in the field of reality-based self-defense, and he has been a, an almost omnipresent figure in numerous videos and training programs. Uh, I can think of several different uh, experts in the field of self-defense whose videos feature Peyton, and, of course, Peyton has his own videos, and you've seen his clips on the ISCTC. You can visit him online at www.rmcat.com, Ramcat.com, which is a website for Rocky Mountain Combat Applications training. Uh, all right, Peyton, let's jump right in. I know you're very familiar with this topic. What do we mean when we say stopping power? What's a good working definition? Well,
3: stopping power refers to the ability of the bullet to affect the stop of the attacker that is so immediate that the attacker would be incapable of returning fire or continuing his attack if he was using an edged or blunt trauma weapon like a knife or stick, tire etc. The fact is that a handgun of any caliber is a marginal weapon or at best a somewhat light weapon to instantly stop someone Or an animal as large as a man. There's a difference between uh, stopping power and killing power. Any gun, any, a 25 auto can kill somebody. But when we talk about stopping power, we're talking about the ability of the bullet to stop the person so instantly that he cannot return fire.
2: Now I know that one of the, one of the perennial pieces of self-defense advice that I remember reading in some of the earliest books I ever picked up on the topic was, this notion of shooting to kill versus shooting to wound, you know, people will say, uh, when they're Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking a shooting incident, you know, people who don't know firearms will say, I don't understand why the police had to shoot that guy with the knife. Couldn't they have just shot him in the leg and wounded him? He was, he was far away and he had a knife and they had guns. And the idea that you can shoot in a, in a stressful situation to create the effect you want, either killing him or not killing him, is, uh, something of a misconception, and what the idea is, is you shoot to stop the person, to put him down. Uh, I'm assuming that's, that's a correct interpretation.
3: Yes, uh, my father, you know, taught me, gave me my first handgun lesson. I'll never forget what he said. He said, son, a man worth shooting is a man worth killing. <laughs> well, uh, actually, I, at the time I didn't quite understand it, but later experience me showed the wisdom of it. Uh, there's two elements here when you say the police and the guy with the knife. First, a man with a knife can generally cover 28 feet before you can draw your gun and fire and stop him. This is a drill we do at, uh, my other website is stressshooting.com. I've been teaching firearms by scenario based uh, adrenal stress methods, uh, for 20 years as well, uh, we will take a guy and we'll give him a gun in a holster that's almost a quick-draw holster, okay? And <clears throat> the person will be 28, 30 feet away. And that guy can uh, burst in a run, pull, pull out the knife and stab most people before they can get their gun out and fire two shots at center of mass. We use rubber bullets, so the person always knows where they're hit. Low velocity rubber bullets, uh, propelled only by the primer. So that's one thing. If the, so, if, a, if a, a a person pulls out an edged weapon on on a police officer, even if the police officer is 15 feet away, his life is definitely in jeopardy. So he is, under any departmental policy, I know, justified in using lethal force. Now, as far as shooting him in the leg or wounding somebody, that's, that is quite dicey and unlikely to occur because the adrenal stress dominates the whole thing. You'll have tunnel vision, loss of fine motor control, auditory exclusion. It's not like at the range, uh, and it'll probably be dark, dark. In fact, in general, in an actual shooting incident, it's almost impossible to use the sights of the uh, pistol and i have demonstrated that repeatedly even people who come in here or who are die hard uh, sight fire only people once they go through two or three scenarios and they realize they didn't even remember the gun had sights on it they reverse their position
2: now i remember reading and it's a very compelling argument the idea that legally If you're justified in even presenting your firearm at another human being, you had better be justified in using lethal force because the presentation of the firearm is in effect saying, I am about to use lethal force unless you radically change your behavior. The the behavior that that is being presented to me must be so egregious that I'm justified in in actually unlimbering a lethal weapon and preparing to use it. That's where that, if he's worth shooting, he's worth killing, comes in. The (laughs) idea that no matter how you shoot him, it's lethal force.
3: Though there's no politically correct way to shoot somebody, that's for sure. Um, uh, You bring up the legal issue of legal liability and what is called uh, felony menacing or brandishing in almost any state in the country. In other words, let's say you have a concealed weapons permit, and uh, somebody's yelling at you and hassling you, and you just open your coat and show him the gun. Don't even touch it you could be charged with felony menacing or brandishing. And in most states, it's a felony. If you're convicted of a felony, you can never legally own a gun again. So now that's, that's the value of scenario-based training, too. Uh, you have to make that decision whether to present. Present means to take the gun out or to fire. Um, but the real trick is, <laughs> as you say, the conditions whereby you can legally present the gun, that is, take it out of your holster and hold it in your hand so it can be seen, are only a hair's breadth away from the uh, situation where you're justified in shooting and using lethal force. So you know, it's not an easy decision to make, really. So that's where scenario-based training comes in. You rehearse it. It won't be the first time you face something like that you get more and more used to it more and more able to make finer discriminations
2: a relative of mine experienced a, a perfect example of this he was he got into his truck it was a summer day so his window was down he was parked in a in a short driveway on a very quiet street you know the street's not very large the sidewalk is very close to the driveway well Someone in a passing car was either going too fast or did something he didn't like, and sitting in his car out the open window, he shouted some sort of insult. And the male in the passenger seat became offended at whatever insult he thought was being thrown at the female in the driver's seat, so the car stopped and reversed. And the guy got out of his car and uh, started to look like he was going to walk up to the truck that my relative was sitting in. Well, my relative pulled out his gun. Now, he wasn't justified in pointing a gun at anyone. This wasn't a lethal force situation yet. And he didn't point the gun. He just held it up. And, of course, as most sane people would, the fellow decided to get back in his truck and go away. But when my relative explained to me what he'd done, he was all proud that he'd had had one of those it-happened-to-me experiences. I said to him, you are very lucky that the police did not show up on your doorstep because you just committed felony menacing, essentially. You, You held a gun... In a situation where it wasn't yet clear that lethal force was warranted.
3: Well, absolutely. Now let's look at the if the guy had, if he could see both the man's hands, and even if the guy was uh, approaching the car with blood in his eye and what I call the Frankenstein walk, when a person means intent instead of walking normally, like Frankenstein, one whole side of his body moves at a time. You should learn to spot that. But anyway, in this case, as you, as you, uh, give me the information, the guy didn't have any weapon. He could see both his hands. He made no verbal threat that he was going to kill him or anything like that. Therefore, he would probably, he, if that man, uh, who got, who ran off because he saw the gun went to the police, he would say, God damn, this, this guy yelled some shit at my car and I went to talk to him and he pulled a gun on me. Yeah, well, exactly. the police would be required to show up and they probably would arrest you for either brandishing or felony menacing. Now, you go through the plea bargain system, the DA will look at it and he'll say, well, uh, I don't think there was a felonious intent here. If you plead guilty to this, we'll, uh, call, you know, that'll settle it. But I, w- I would personally never plead guilty to a felony if I thought I was uh, not guilty. Or if I felt my, uh, now here's, here's an, another point that even makes it more, uh, more of a hard discrimination. If, uh, your relative, if he genuinely thought in his own mind, sincerely, that his life was in jeopardy, then he was justified in using the gun. It's not if the jeopardy is real. It's if the jeopardy was truly in his mind and he felt his life was in danger.
2: Right. You see and the, we get into those the, the, tier, the, the, tier uh,
3: the, complexities of it. Yeah. I generally, you know, I, uh, I'm not going to pull my gun out unless I need to use it immediately myself. Although I can't imagine hypothetical situations where I would display it to, uh, discourage a group of people who were about to assault me who I knew or not armed.
2: Right. And to me, those situations are the situations where you're presenting the firearm because in a moment you're about to start shooting and you believe you're justified to do so.
3: Well, yeah, I, people just have to be sensitive to this. They cannot display a weapon uh, with impunity. It's it's uh, against the law. It's felony menacing, you know. So, uh, in fact, depending on the jurisdiction, and they can have the same exact law in two counties, but it's enforced differently. So, you could be in the uh, subway sandwich place, you've got a CCW, but you haven't been assiduous about concealing your firearm, and as you reach for the subway, your shirt comes up, and uh, the woman in line behind you sees the gun in the holster, and she... She's freaked out, and she steps out and dials the police. There's a man with a gun in here. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so she calls the police. The police are going to come, and I can guarantee you their weapons are going to be in their hands, and you better cooperate with them and display your open palms and declare that you have a CCW. You know? But no. if that happens once or twice in most jurisdictions, they might pull your CCW. Yeah,
2: Yeah. as certain firearms instructors have learned only recently, the things you do and say have certain consequences where your license to carry is concerned.
3: In um, some ways, your liability is higher than if you did not have a permit. Yeah. I've chosen to have a concealed weapons permit myself um, primarily because, by virtue of experience and training, Although I live on this, you know, ranch pretty remote, when I go into town, if I'm sitting at a nice restaurant with my wife or, uh, in a shopping mall with her or whatever, or even the Safeway or King Supers, the reason I carry that gun is because of the remote chance that some madman will come in there shooting a bunch of people indiscriminately. I want to have the means to stop him. Now, I, don't, in- I really don't think in terms of my being attacked, although I realize that's certainly possible.
2: One, one of the aspects of this topic that I find most interesting, Peyton, is all of the, the myths that surround firearms and stopping power, the sorts of things that people repeat ad nauseum and don't <laughs> know what they're talking about. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest handgun stopping power myths?
3: Well, okay, we've all seen Clint Eastwood in the Westerns. He's sitting in the barber's chair, his gun's underneath the barber sheet that's on him, and the three guys start to draw their guns or menace him, and boom, 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 he shoots them, and their bodies fly through the glass window behind him. In other words, the bullet knocks them off their feet. Well, of course, that can't happen. Simple Newtonian mechanics is enough to understand that. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. If the gun were powerful enough to knock somebody off his feet when the bullet struck them, it would also knock the shooter off his feet. You see what I mean? Right, it would
2: rip your arm off.
3: <laughs> well, it would hit you, it would push back. The recoil to the shooter would be the same amount of force that the bullet struck the shooty. So, uh, no, a, a bullet is, a handgun bullet especially, is not going to knock somebody off his feet. In fact, even a 12 gauge shotgun with double O buck, uh, is not, is more likely, but it's really not going to knock somebody off their feet. Right. Another one, I think, and I know I must step on some toes here, but we're best served by the truth, is the 40, the 45 ACP cartridge fired out of a 1911 pistol. Uh, many, I've been around people who will only carry a 1911, okay? A 45 Auto. Well, it's a fine pistol. It served our nation well for a hundred years. But here's the thing, here's the reality of it. The 45 Auto primarily got its reputation for stopping power by Marines in the Pacific shooting half-starved and dehydrated Japanese. And sure, it stopped them better than a 38 because that's the only other pistol that was in that theater. Yeah, definitely a forty five will stop better than a thirty eight. But here's a key concept. The Geneva Convention uh prevents the signers of that document to use hollow point or expanding ammunition in war. So all ammunition that's with the exception of the Navy SEALs and a few other units, is uh full metal jacket ammunition, non expanding ammunition so and also up until about the mid 60s really decent uh, hollow point or expanding ammunition wasn't really available but expanding modern expanding ammunition changes the ballistic picture a lot um, it, the 45 auto however doesn't benefit as much as higher velocity uh pistols because the average uh 230 grain uh, ball ammo out of a 1911 is only traveling about 850 feet per second. Whereas a 357 Magnum, 158 grain, is uh, traveling at 1350 feet per second. 1350 feet per second is enough for expanding ammunition to expand. 850 is very marginal. And, uh, it, it, it's not really that complex, but but I will get into it. Many people think that the hollow point expands and gets larger, its diameter gets larger, and that's why it stops the person better because the bullet gets bigger. So if they shoot their .45 into gelatin and they pull it out, they see that it's mushroom fine and they think that uh, the hollow point has achieved what it's supposed to do. But the expansion of the the bullet, the bullet getting better, bigger, that is the hollow point getting bigger as it goes through the body, is not why hollow points have better stopping power. The bullet expands because the body is mostly water, and so water is incompressible. It cannot be squeezed into a smaller space no matter how much force is applied. So when the hollow point fills with water the body the tissues that water can't be expanded so what expands is the bullet into a mushroom type shape but that's not expanding in that mushroom shape causes a hydrostatic shock wave that damages organs and tissues and arteries that were never touched by the bullet itself so the 45 i mean of course i have one too and I, I would not feel un- underarmed with it in my hand, but I would rather have a 357 or a 40 Smith and Wesson because those, ra- those cartridges move at a velocity where I'm such high enough such that they're more likely to expand and achieve a more uh, reliable uh, instant stop.
2: Now, uh, are there some more handgun myths we can list before we move on from that topic?
3: Well, uh, let's talk about mouse guns. I've, I've, I've heard the 25 auto and the 22 long rifle referred to as mouse, or even the 380, referred to as mouse guns. Uh, the, the inference being they don't have any stomping power. Well, it's true, a 25 full metal case doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have much stomping power. Yet, the fact is, about, oh, a third of the people who are shot with 25 autos are killed. And the 22 long rifle has probably killed more people than any other cartridge on the planet, simply because it's used more often. And look at the Mossad, or back in the old days, our own intelligence agencies. Both the Mossad and our own CIA and NSA, uh, the pistol of choice for... Uh, a close-range assassination with a 22 long rifle, uh, Colt Woodsman and a suppressor. Uh, later, they even used the Ruger Mark II's with suppressors. So, bullet. Uh, let's look at. Here's another way to look at it. Even the lightest caliber bullet, if the bullet placement is correct, can cause an instant stop. And that's the head or the left ventricle of the heart. The <laughs> head being more reliable. Alright, uh,
2: moving on from, from myths then, I, I think there's a heavy component of psychology involved when it comes to, to stopping power. And I've read some articles that, that, uh, describe the phenomenon where people are programmed to think when they get shot, they're supposed to fall down because that's what happens in the movies. So when they get shot, they obediently fall down. And then you find people who didn't get that memo so they don't even notice they've been shot until after the fact when everyone's pointing and going, uh, you're bleeding a lot. What yes. role does psychology play in, in stopping power?
3: It, it plays a significant uh role. Uh it, your, your question reminds me of some SWAT team people I uh, trained a, some years ago, and one of the SWAT guys had a T-shirt that said on it, if I'm shot, I'm not dead. If I'm dead, I don't know it. Right. So that was, that was his attitude going into it, you see. Yes, uh, it, it's, it's a fact and I, I, I can directly testify to that. Let's say, uh, two, in a military context, two soldiers get the identical wound. Let's say it's a, a, a piece of shrapnel or grenade or uh, an AK round through the, through the butt, you know, through the cheek of the butt. Well, one guy, he starts to go into, uh, uh, shock, uh, hyperventilates, and he dies. There's no medical reason that he should have died. The other guy doesn't even go to an aid station till later on. You know? So, yes, the psychology, the attitude is important. Uh, but the bottom line on that is, as the, uh, uh, the Guru said, Israeli course I took. Uh, He said, never stop fighting.
2: Well, shock is a funny thing. I, I don't think my understanding of shock is, is all that elaborate. I believe I read somewhere that multiple bullets striking the body at the same time are more likely to create shock than being shot in the same places the same number of times. In sort of slow succession, is that true? Do you know.
3: Well, I'm going to have to refine that more. What we're talking about is hydrostatic shock, the hydrostatic shock effect, and the question can be phrased this way: If I have a handgun and I go bam, 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 and those bullets, all three bullets hit the body, uh, that will not be as damaging or a quicker stop as if those same bullets, same bullet design, either full metal jacket or hollow point, same caliber, were fired from a submachine gun, because firing it from those three bullets in the submachine gun, the bullets hit so close together that the hydrostatic shock wave does not have a chance to fully dissipate before the next hydrostatic shock wave is propagated. You see what I mean? Oh and, is why, and
2: force mechanics teaches us that those shockwaves reinforce each other.
3: Yes, indeed they do. It indeed they do. This is why the submachine gun is a hell of a close quarters weapon. It is also why Navy SEALs and a few other groups use soft point ammunition in their uh, submachine guns because their charter is conflicts which makes them exempt from the Geneva Convention. In fact, the last time I dealt with any of those guys and i was not training them and i'm not a seal trainer uh they were using eight uh, N- uh hk mp5s but chambered in 40 smith and wesson they right I, to- I remember
2: reading that those existed
3: yeah yeah they had a made special the 40 smith and wesson is the only now when when i did the bulk of my res- research I couldn't, there weren't enough shootings that I could investigate with the 40 Smith & Wesson because it hadn't been out too long. So the sample space was too small to draw a statistically significant conclusion. But my, uh, gut feeling was the 40 Smith & Wesson that I promptly designed hollow point ammunition fired from a four and a half or five inch barrel was the only automatic pistol round that could uh, approach, or perhaps even equal, the 357 Magnum round for stopping power. We should probably it all. It looks similar in gelatin. You
2: know? We should probably all take comfort in the fact that Homeland Security has what is it a billion rounds of this now it's I, I
3: read something about that. What are they, you know? What are they preparing for? You know Makes I me mean? wonder.
2: Uh, um, now, what are the major variables that affect the stopping power of a firearm, Peyton? We we've, we've touched on. Hydrostatic pressure, I know that there's something called the temporary stretch cavity that you talk right. about when you talk about ballistics. What are right. the major variables that go into this?
3: Okay, let's look at the first and most important variable, and that is simply bullet placement. Uh, but bullet placement in an actual shootout is the factor we have the least control over, too. You, I mean, you can sit there at the range and make tight groups on a piece of, on a target, that, that really doesn't count for much when it, it's real. Uh, you won't even be, be able to use those sights. Trigger control, breath control, stance, all that stuff that is uh, very important in target shooting isn't even relevant to a gunfight as a rule, As a, I would say in 90% of the cases. And, uh, okay, so the first thing is bullet placement. There are actually only two places on the human body that a bullet could strike, that for medical reasons alone would cause an immediate collapse. One is if the bullet actually entered the brain case, and entered the brain. Right. The other is if the bullet uh, ruptured the left ventricle of the heart. The left ventricle is the high pressure area. If a bullet ripped through the left ventricle of the heart, blood pressure would immediately almost immediately drop to zero, the person's knees would buckle, and he would collapse unconscious on the ground. Now, a bullet that hits somebody in the head does not necessarily uh, enter the brain case. In that case, the person can continue uh, his hostile activities. I uh, re- reviewed four cases where people were shot point blank in their forehead with a forty five ACP, full metal jacket in all these cases, though. Not a hollow point. The full metal jacket bullet hit the skull and spun around the skull underneath the skin and did not enter the brain case. In that case, I mean the one guy looked like he had a broomstick under the, under his, uh, skin. But that, but that guy shot in the head with a .45 was able to jump across the table, grab the guy's gun and he, and beat the guy half to death till the other people at the table pulled him off the guy.
2: That's an understandable reaction. Say again? I said that's an understandable reaction.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, these were some unsavory characters, frankly. Um, Okay,
2: so we've talked about shot placement. What's the next variable that affects handgun stopping power?
3: Well, bullet placement is first. Second is whether a solid point bullet, a full metal jacket bullet, or a hollow point is used. But, you know, hollow points definitely, uh, achieve better stopping power than the same caliber in full metal jacket.
2: Well, while we're on that topic, explain to our audience how hollow points work. People, people think that these are the almighty exploding dum-dum bullets and no, uh, the no, flying no. ashtray and all this other nonsense, and there are even laws that make them illegal in some places. It's my understanding a hollow point is just a bullet that has a channel drilled through the front of it so that when it enters your body, it sort of mushrooms out to create a bigger hole.
3: Well, that is true. It does mushroom out, but it's not the bigger hole that gives it the, its stopping power. It's an increase. It's not the bigger hole or the larger diameter of the bullet that really gives it its greater stopping power over a solid point design. It's that if it's moving fast enough, it's as it expands. It expands because the fluid that enters that hole in the bullet is incompressible. So the flanges of the of the hollow point expand, but the, remember the bullet's still moving at high velocity through the body. That creates a hydrostatic shock wave. That is a shock wave that can rupture and damage organs, tissues, arteries that the bullet never touched.
2: So it's like when you reach into a pool of water and you cup your hand and you shove the water in front of your hand. You're creating a, a cone of hydrostatic pressure in front of your hand.
3: Yeah, the principle's been well known. It's used, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's similar to the principle of shaped charges, actually. Uh, l- let's, uh, let's, uh, let's look at how we measure hydrostatic shock, uh, in the experimental setting. Everybody's heard of ballistic gel- gelatin, okay? Ballistic gelatin is not, is not an ideal or the best, uh, simulate a uh, simulator of human tissue, but at least it's really the best we have thus far, and it's normalized, meaning that we know what we're measuring each time we do it. So we pour uh, uh, a uh, milk carton full of this jello. We pull the milk carton away. We take a propane torch and lightly rub it over the surface so it's clear, and then we shoot a bullet in the center. When the bullet goes into the gelatin. We will see two structures through the transparent gelatin. One, the permanent crust cavity. This is where the, this is the gelatin, where the gelatin was actually hit by the bullet. The hole that's drilled through it. Around that permanent crust cavity, there's the temporary stretch cavity. That is a football shaped, uh, area. Where the gelatin is disturbed by hydrostatic shock, but it was not actually touched by the bullet. So if the heart or an artery were in that area of the hydrostatic shock, it would probably be ruptured. Now since we've got, if you've got that picture in mind of a football shaped, uh, area of disturbed gelatin where the bullet went through and through the center of that is the permanent crust cavity, the football shape is the temporary stretch cavity, the area not actually hit by the bullet, but disturbed by the hydrostatic shock. Then you can imagine that the highest point would be in the center of the football. That is from the bottom of the football shaped thing to the top would be the maxima or the maximum height of the temporary stretch cavity. It turns out that where that, where that uh maximum of the temp- temporary stretch cavity occurs in the body has a lot to do with stopping power. It may surprise some people, but a 41 magnum or a 44 magnum has less stopping power as a rule on most people than a 357 magnum. The simple reason is those two are overpowered. And so that maxima of the temporary stretch cavity is partially out outside the body or too deep in the body. Uh, when hollow points first came out, they, they, they were thinking about very fast, light, high velocity bullets, 110 grains or so. But those bullets expanded too early and the, and the maximum was too shallow. The 150 gain 357 magnum has that, uh, maxima of the temporary stretch cavity. The, Tissue that's affected by hydrostatic shock but not actually hit by the bullet in pretty much the ideal place with the maximum amplitude. Uh, so now there is another factor though. I said most people. Well, let's say it's, say there's a guy who's six foot six and weighs 320 pounds. He's a giant guy, right? Well, he's, his bot, his organs are deeper and there's more muscle between me. So, yeah, there I'd rather have a 41 or a 44 Magnum. But you don't you you don't know what your enemy's going size is going to be. You don't know what clothing he's going to wear. So, I mean, expanding bullets do not always expand just because they're designed to expand and they are hollow points does not mean they will always expand. For what example, are some of the
2: reasons that a hollow point might not expand.
3: Let's say the guy's wearing a leather jacket as the bullet pe- penetrates his leather jacket, a plug of leather, fills that cavity in the bullet. Now water can't get in there and can't expand it properly. Even even clothing can do that. Even ordinary clothing can sometimes do that. Heavy clothing will often do it. There's uh, a, the,
2: people tell stories about how a heavy overcoat will save you from a 25
3: caliber bullet. Uh, I, I, I admire it. A 20 awfully light. Uh, it's, it's it, I mean, if you shoot somebody in the head or if that bullet goes in the heart, that'll stop him. That'll kill him. But twenty-five, uh, I wouldn't recommend a twenty-five auto for any self-defense purpose. On the other hand, the weapon I carry is a Polish P sixty-four, which is a copy of the PP, Walter's PPK, but m- this one's chambered in nine by eighteen. Makarov, uh, a little hotter than a 380, but not much, and not as hot as a 9 millimeter.
2: I like the 9 by 18 Makarov. I like the the Makarov PM design too, because they're nice, solid, communist block weapons. <laughs> when you run <laughs> yes. out of bullets, you can beat them like, to death. Like the count. AK-47.
3: Yes. Uh, well, also, I like the pointability of the Walter design. It is the angle of the grip to the axis of the bore. That makes a gun have natural pointability. The ideals, ideal uh, there is found in the German PO8, the Luger, the handle and the barrel, that angle. Then you're naturally pointed. That's why I carry that P64, because I'm just very fast and accurate with it, without having to use the sights, because it's a natural pointer. Uh, also, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood's carrying this Forty-four Magnum, I mean, carrying a gun around all day is uncomfortable. They're big, they're heavy. And one day you just won't carry it because, oh, fuck, you know. So the only gun you're going to have on you all the time is one that's comfortable to carry, and that means a smaller pocket pistol, as a rule.
2: Absolutely. I I carry a pocket pistol myself for that reason. Um, Now, we talked about shot placement. We talked about whether or not you're using hollow-point bullets. Uh, are there other factors that affect stopping power that we need to cover?
3: Sure. Uh, I, I indirectly mentioned the size of the person, but there's also, uh, the effect of certain drugs. Uh, for example, PCP or, uh, even methamphetamine speed. I, I was down in Texas and, this was years ago and doing researching this. And the Texas Department of Public Safety of Highway Patrol, their Highway Patrol, I was with these officers and they showed me a videotape they had taken of their shooting this, uh, this, this, uh, this man. What had happened is he went in to rob a very small town on the plains, this pharmacy drugstore. Unfortunately for him, there was a three county meeting of the police departments and there were just a short distance away there were a whole lot of cops and so they got the call and they all showed up at once and he took the woman who was hostage and came out in the street he was obviously high it turned out PCP uh the cops were um, I mean this is amazing but I saw it you know the guy the cops had 12 gauge shotguns and automatic pistols i recognized a few 1911s but i didn't really Couldn't identify all the pistols they had. They seem to be all autos, though. Uh, Then he's got a revolver to the woman's head. It goes off accidentally, scatters her brains to the wind. At that instant, of course, everybody, and I would say there were at least 10 or 11 of them, all the cops start shooting him from about 30 feet away with 12-gauge shotguns and pistols. It's just a fusillade of fire. Now in general, when, if, when you, it's not in the mo- like in the movies, when you shoot somebody, there's not a big splat of red or any of that stuff, blood splattering out. You usually don't know if you hit them or not unless they fall down. But one of the things that does happen, and it did happen in this case, is little pieces of clothing can fly off as the bullets impact on the surface. Well boy, the, those little pieces of, uh, clothing, you know, are gonna ripped out and blasted out. They were jumping all over this guy's chest and abdomen and leg. So he was definitely being hit. He, he goes down and falls down. The police then start coming out from behind the cover of their cars. They get about halfway to him. He comes to and is reaching for his pistol and raising it to return fire. Uh, wisely, the cops ran back behind their cover before they started returning fire. Then he got up to, like, on his knees and was pointing the gun at all these cops and they shot him again. And the little pieces of, uh, clothing jump off him again. He did get hit in the head though. It was amazing, you know. He just, he, he was able to return fire after being hit, I don't know how many times, but at least 25. And, and this is buckshot and, you know, uh, combat caliber pistols that an officer might carry. Right. In the last scene of the film, he's on a gurney, strapped down to a gurney, and he's still selling shit. He's saying, I'll kill y'all, I'll kill y'all. He died before he got to the hospital, but it was primarily that he was a large man and he was high on PCP. So drugs can affect whether you're around, stop the person.
2: All right, we've got shot placement, we've got uh, the type of ammunition, we've got drugs and the physical size and nature of the person, um, trying to think What of
3: clothing he's wearing. Is there are there a lot of variables. Coming? So you just can't say you, uh, you... There's just a lot of variables. So almost anything can happen.
2: What about barrel length? I remember reading an article in a gun magazine where they took a revolver that had, I don't know, a six or seven inch barrel, and they fired it and they measured the muzzle velocity... And then they started chopping the barrel off in inch increments so that they could test the velocity of the shorter and shorter barrel. It seems to me like you get to a certain point where there's so little pressure developed that the bullet would just, you know, split out of your gun and, and hit the ground
3: if you've got no <laughs>
2: barrel at all. Uh, where does where does the length of the barrel come into play?
3: Well, I think the metaphor I would use is to say a blowgun. You put a dart in a blowgun and you give it that poof, okay? The longer the blowgun is, the longer the dart has to accelerate. Well, in a, bar- in a barrel, the hammer hits the primer, detonates the, or burns the gunpowder in the case, the bullet is projected out, but the bullet is slightly smaller than the diameter of the barrel. So there is a gas seal there. So if the The bullet is accelerating the whole time it's going down the barrel. So, a longer barrel up to a point is going to create a higher velocity for the bullet because it has more time and distance to accelerate.
2: Is there a point of diminishing returns where, you know, a five foot barrel just doesn't get you anything extra?
3: No, I see. By then, see, with a pistol, uh, on a pistol, the, the gases would start to cool. Having hit that much cold metal and such, and so the bullet would start to have less velocity but let's see what in practical terms, if you're a revolver aficionado and there's a lot to be said for revolvers for self defense frankly uh, if you have a if you have a three hundred fifty seven magnum with a two and a half inch barrel well you've lost the velocity. That makes the 357 Magnum so uh, such a good man stopper, but you still have all the muzzle blast and recoil. So you'd really be better off with a uh, hollow point 38 out of that weapon plus P. You see, less so. less recoil and, and similar stopping power because the barrel's too short. But if you've got a four inch barrel, then that 357 Magnum has enough uh, time to accelerate. And achieve its full potential. And a six inch barrel even more so.
2: I seem to recall that one of the criticisms of the, the M4 carbine compared to the M16 is that the barrel is simply not long enough for the rounds to develop enough velocity to be as effective. I,
3: you know, I, 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 you know, I ride, I, I ride Harley's been building since I was a kid and I'm known at the local biker bar and a lot of the vets who are coming back from Afghanistan come in there and I talked to them and they, they're not real happy about the M4 as a rule. Uh, but I think the real problem there is the change in ammunition. In my day, we had the M193 round. It was 55 grains. That was a one shot, one kill pretty much thing because it was so high velocity. If you hit a bone, hit somebody in the leg, it'd run up their leg and Exit their kidney or something like that, you see. But now they've gone to the SS-109, a 62 grain bullet with a steel core penetrator. The idea being to give it more penetration and better performance because it's heavier at longer ranges. But in doing that, it seems, but I'm not sure, I haven't done the test, I've done one test and I've done enough, that it's lost, it's, it's lost the, uh, Vicious stopping power of the old M193 55 grain. It just punches holes through them. That was first witnessed in Somalia where they were shooting the guys. Of course, the guys they were shooting were on, were on a drug they chew there. And, uh, you know, they would shoot the guy twice and he would run to another cover and continue to run and fire. Had as soon as we bleed to death. So they got on the RTO and got some M14s and they proved more satisfactory in stopping them. One thing I'll mention there, a pistol is not a rifle. Rifles do their damage almost uh, all by hydrostatic shock. A rifle, a pistol bullet might be moving at 1,350, even 1,450 feet per second, some hot rounds 1,600 feet per second. An M16 bullet is moving about 3,200 feet per second. And velocity gets squared in that equation, so it's a big difference. To understand hydrostatic shock a little better, imagine you got a can, okay, uh, two two identical empty tin cans with lids, and you stuck one can underwater so there was no air in it, and you tap the cap on that so that there was nothing but water and no air in the can, and you set it up on a fence post. Then you got the other can and filled it three-fourths full of water, or just left some small air space. Air is compressible. When you shot the 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 can that had no air in it and only water, the hydrostatic shock would rupture that can to pieces. You know, just just rupture it to pieces. But when you shot the can that had some air space, that air space would allow uh, the air to be compressed. Uh, relieving the inside of the can from a, a serious hydrostatic shock wave, the result would be it would just punch a hole and the water would leak out.
2: I'm the reminded body of- is
3: incompressible. The body's, the blood is all in vessels. There's no air in there.
2: Well, I'm yeah. reminded of what happens when you throw a bullet into a campfire. Everyone who's done it knows that instead of flying out like a, a bullet from a gun, <laughs> it just sort of goes pop, and the brass casing blows apart, and maybe we'll take somebody's eye out. But the bullet pretty much stays where it is because it's heavier. Uh in Exactly. The, in the case of using cartridges for for booby traps, I and mean, you see those those old military manuals that show you mounting a nail and a and a rifle round in a bamboo tube to use it as a as a makeshift booby trap. Even a light tube of something that will destroy itself is enough to build up a little bit of pressure to make the projectile actually go somewhere. So in the, it's my understanding that in the absence of any means of building up pressure what you get is not terribly effective much like the contents that make up a pipe bomb pretty much are just a firework until they're inside a pipe
3: so they can build up pressure but here we're dealing with a, a special the special physics of water water is absolutely incompressible it's about the only f- substance that gets larger when it freezes and turns into ice. Right. Uh, water is incompressible. You can't squeeze it into, no matter how much pressure is applied, you can't squeeze it into a smaller space. That's what creates hydrostatic shockwaves. Uh, just as a historical note, that's how they took out the, the German dams in World War II by uh, bombs that were around, skipped over the surface of the water, hit the con- the dam wall, and then sank. And then when they got about halfway down, then they detonated. So right. the water capped the charge, and the hydrostatic shot was enough to rupture the dam, whereas otherwise the explosives would not hardly have been sufficient to destroy the dam. Hydrostatic shot.
2: Now, Peyton, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up, given that you are the man who put adrenal stress training on the map. You're an expert in this field. Where does adrenal stress training come into play where stopping power is concerned, both for the shooter and for the attacker?
3: Well, okay, let's look at the shooter first, because I think that's what people should know and take home with them. Uh, the Okay. Adrenaline, when I say adrenaline, I'm talking about uh, the entire noradrenaline complex, but adrenaline is enough to, for people to understand. These are the physiological effects. One, tunnel vision. Your vision tunnels in. For example, if a guy pulls a knife on you, all you see is the knife. You're tunneled into the knife. God guy pulls a gun, you're tunneled into the gun. That's why the cops say when they ask a... I had a liquor store in Arm Robbie's, and they would come in they'd say, well, give me the description. And I'd say, well, you had to cut down Mossberg 500 and, da, 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 and all this stuff. And they'd say, what? Nobody gives us descriptions like that. And I'd say, well, what do they say? Because they always say it was the biggest gun I ever saw. See, that's tunnel vision. So one is tunnel vision. The other is auditory exclusion. That is, your hearing shuts off. This is why police will fire their pistols in a closed room and, and say, so all I heard was pop, pop. You see? You may not hear another attacker coming up on you. You may not hear fire coming from somewhere else. Auditory exclusion. The other one, very important, is loss of fine motor control. Uh, you know, I, uh, we 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 use scenario based training under adrenal stress, and I see black belts who are pretty good. They can hit the bag good, they can spar good, but then you come up to them and say, "Hey, motherfucker, what what are you what are you doing?" You know, you see what I mean? Well, that's they, now they're out of their element, and when attacked with the guy in the armored suit, uh, they can't do any of their martial arts moves because under the adrenal rush, they don't have any fine motor skills. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. But in shooting, it comes down to here. In target shooting, they emphasize breath control, squeezing the trigger, and all that. All these things are elements of target shooting. You want to be a good target shooter, you better learn those things. But target shooting does not translate to an actual gunfight, and things like you won't even know uh, whether the trigger is twelve pounds or two and a half pounds. You see what I mean? You won't know the weapon even has sights. And I've demonstrated that to so many people over the years that it's it's really a given. Now there are a few exceptions. Jim Cirillo was my mentor in this. The late Jim Swirl, a great guy, uh killed a dozen men in gunfights in New York City as a stakeout cop. And we pretty much had a meeting of the minds o- on that. Uh his experience was much greater than mine. I mean um uh, <laughs> quite a man. Uh, well let's go into uh uh, Something that would be of might, interest to the people. We
2: might have overlooked, uh, tacky psyche. I know that's another one. Tacky
3: psyche. Okay, that one's yeah. the one that's, uh, uh, people have a hard time getting. So let me see. Like, tacky psyche is things appear in slow motion. Now, if you're a parent, for example, and you see your kid on the jungle gym and you know he's going to fall and he falls, boom, suddenly everything's moving in slow motion. Let's say you're in an automobile accident and, uh, Somebody makes a left turn in front of you and you know you're going to hit them, especially if you're in the passenger seat, it all starts to go in slow motion. Uh, now, here's what happens. Of course, time is not actually affected here. What happens is you are seeing faster. Because of the adrenaline in your bloodstream and in your brain, your hearing shuts off, auditory exclusion. Processing power is shifted to the visual cortex, so you can see faster. You can see how that clearly has survival value from an evolutionary point of view. So, uh, you know, actually, uh, I back in my bouncer days, in the early '70s, after the Earth cooled and the dinosaurs were gone, <laughs> uh, I experienced tacky psyche many times. And I even came to rely on it and use it. You know, people would say, I can't believe you took that pool cue out. You, you move so fast. But to me, he was raising that pool cue in slow motion, say, you you see what's going to happen before it happens. Then you've got your seeing faster. Still have to move your body, but well, we might be digressing on the firearms. Let me just get this point across. You, you generally cannot use the sights of the pistol when it's a real gunfight. The tunnel, the the uh, you, you point shooting, you, you must acquire that skill. The way we do it here is, first, we have cartridges where when the hammer hits the primer for a hundredth of a second, a laser beam fires. So there's no recoil and there's no noise. You see what I mean? So they're not distracted by that. Then I have three guys start rushing at them with uh, clubs and edged weapons. They shoot and move, and they see their laser beam hitting the guy in the chest without aiming, even though the guys are moving and they're moving. This gives them confidence. Now, And we do it again, so they see it wasn't a fluke. You can do this. Then we go to blanks. Now we have recoil and flame coming out of the weapon but there's no projectile, so we don't have to wear any protection. And they get used to drawing first trying to de back off, but then if we draw a weapon or assault, actually gauge assault, they draw their weapon and shoot. Now think about this. You can go to the most prestigious firearm schools in the United States, which are, are the best firearm schools on the planet because we're a gun culture. Europe is really not. And you can go through their entire course and never practice the one thing you're going to have to do to save your life in a gun situation, and that is point a gun at another human being and pull the trigger. You'll never do that at front sight. And, of course, if you did, you'd be thrown out. You'll never do that anywhere. See, scenario-based training has proven itself. Look at those, those people, uh, Desert Storm. Sure, we had a better tank in the Abrams, but that wasn't all there was, was to it. We had a far, far better training program. Those people had never been to war before, never used their tank in combat. But since their simulators were done so well, they uh, rolled all over the enemy with one Abrams tank taking out a half a dozen or more of the T-72s that the uh, enemy had. Uh Pilots are trained... Through simulation, in fact, every airline pilot has to go back to school and do, do simulations, get in a simulator and show he can still do it, where they give him problems and things like that. This, that was my main, uh, thing really, developing training programs. When they first brought this one simulator in, I saw they were, they were fucking up entirely. It was a, it was a, a helicopter simulator, okay? Well, the guys were all, all, all combat pilots and everything, but they, they didn't know anything about instruction. They didn't know anything about how, how people learn things. So what they did was they just got there at the boards and kept giving the guy problems until he crashed. You no, know, see how many problems he could deal with until he crashes. And the person who lasted the longest before he crashed was the best student. Well, no. You know, no, that's not the way to do it. <laughs> you, you, you know, you, you, you're stomping on the guy's self-confidence when you do that. You're planting the idea of defeat in his mind and all the th- all the things that can go wrong. Not that is not the correct mindset for combat. A proper simulation will push him to the edge, but not over it. Nah, I'm digressing on this.
2: <laughs> no, it's no, just, not at all. I was actually just going to say, Peyton, this hour has flown by mostly because you are so knowledgeable on this topic. It's, it's fascinating, and I know we could go on and on on this topic. Well, so, uh, but to close this but then
3: out... I fall asleep.
2: <laughs> well, to close this out, are there any final thoughts you would like to leave us with uh, on the topic of stopping power and the adrenal stress training that makes it possible to employ it? The closer
3: the... Okay, Bruce Lee said, for example... The best preparation for an event is the event itself. But of course we can't get in, go out and get gunfights to learn how to shoot in a gunfight. I can't go into a bar and spit, go out to some biker and spit in his beard telling me he, uh, he must ride a jet bike. No. That's, you know, you can't do that. So the training program, the more it simulates the actual event, the more effective it's going to be. But the thing it must simulate is that adrenal rush. Martial arts people, they come here against the guy in the armored suit. Some of them are good, but most of them have great difficulty. They can't use their martial arts because they're under adrenal stress and they've never trained under adrenal stress. The only thing you can count on in a combat situation, there's only one thing you can count on in a combat situation, and that is the adrenal rush. So you need to train under that adrenal state in order to perform in the actual event.
2: I think that's very important. And,
3: uh, and, and uh, another thing is, if you do carry a light caliber pistol, and I do, with a 9x18 Macroft, just a little hotter than 380, and less than 9mm, it is the lighter caliber pistols that benefit most by soft point ammunition. Make sure your weapon cycles the soft point ammunition you're using uh reliably. Some guns won't uh cycle it too well. If you're carrying a full-size pistol, find out what the state police, what ammunition they're using, and use the exact same ammunition. That way, if you do have to shoot somebody and you find yourself in a deposition or courtroom, and the opposing attorney says, and you loaded that gun with the most deadly sawpoint ammunition that tears a man's guts out. Isn't that true? You can respond calmly, sir, I loaded my weapon with the same Rounds that our state police use, and for the same reason. You have all to right. think about that. Uh, you gotta not only win in the street, you gotta win in the court.
2: Well, and it's a sad commentary on our society that we spend so much time worrying about all the analysis of our self-defense. It's gonna happen after the fact.
3: It depends on the state you live in. You should know the state laws on the use of deadly force. In my state, they're, they're common sense. A person breaks into your house, you have a right to shoot and kill them.
2: You oh, don't have, There's no awesome. duty to
3: retreat. There are two Many types of states:
2: really states
3: duty to retreat and non-duty to retreat.
2: Yeah.
3: Find out what's, what if you're living in a duty to retreat state or a non-duty to retreat state.
2: Well, and I, I believe the uh, uh, ISCTC puts out another program called Bulletproof Self Defense, which covers the legal aspects in great detail. Yeah, that's a topic that can uh, take us up uh, quite some time.
3: I, th- I thought I was pretty. uh uh <laughs> well, I thought you were can't...
2: pretty good in that, actually. <laughs> I,
3: I was surprised how well it came out, frankly. Uh I must have been sober. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: on that note, uh Peyton Quinn, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Those of you interested in learning more about Peyton and his training, go to R M C A T dot com, that's w dot com for Rocky Mountain Combat Applications Training. Uh well, er, applicationtraining.com
3: <laughs> and, and for firearms training it, our website is stress shooting s-t-r-e-s-s-h-o-t-i-n-g stressshooting.com
2: right. well, there's Peyton, a PDF you there they
3: can do, down, download too for free that goes into a lot of this
2: I'm going to go there well, uh, right now
3: actually <laughs> <laughs> Peyton, it was really a great doing it I think uh, Jeff is really bringing some Much needed information to the people that, well, it generally isn't, uh, isn't heard, isn't, isn't talked about.
2: And I agree wholeheartedly. Of course, I'm a little biased since I happen to be a (laughs) deal of the organization myself. Well, Peyton, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. You again here on uh, the International Society of Close Quarters Combatants uh, in the future.
3: I'd be happy to do so.
2: All right. well, thank you very much. And to all of you. you who listened and those of you who sent in your questions as we were doing the broadcast, and uh, thank you so much for making this, as it always is, the fastest part of my week. Uh, on behalf of all of us here at the ISCQC and our president, Jeff Anderson, train hard and stay safe. Good night, everyone.
1: This has been Modern Combat and Survival. survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment.